on episode two of the InsureTech Geek podcast, talking predictive analytics and all things innovation with Skip Brechtel, EVP and CIO of CCMSI. InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives with our own research and development team into technology that we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Greetings, everybody. We're going to have a great discussion this week. Episode two, episode two of the Insure Tech Geek podcast. It's the early days, but we're going, we're going in with the big hitters. I mean, I, I pulled the, I pulled the guy from the, the batting lineup that really should be in that cleanup spot. He's the big hitter, Mister Skip Brechtel, EVP and CIO of CCMSI. Skip, how are you doing today? James, I am doing absolutely awesome. Great day, Friday, getting ready to have a long weekend. So looking forward to our conversation today. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it's going to be a good one. Uh, we just saw each other. Uh, we've, we've, uh, we've seen each other a good bit in the last couple months. Uh, you and I have been working together for years now, about 11 years. But, but we got to see each other at the RIMS conference where we obviously met some amazing people, saw some great technology. Uh, we got to co-present uh, to a, a really neat forum talking about predictive analytics. And that's where we talked about uh, having this discussion on the air so that everybody out there in podcast listener land could talk about and hear about what's going on at one of the leading TPAs in the country with predictive analytics and, of course, a lot more than that. But before we we jump into that discussion about the the current and future tech that we're implementing, I love giving background on our show's list, uh, show's guests to our listeners, so they can get to know you a little bit better. Now you've got a unique accent. Uh, I believe you call it Irish Channel. Uh, you're from the great city of New Orleans, correct? That is correct. Grew up in the uh, inner city of New Orleans. Uh, attended a high school that was a block and a half uh, from my house. Walked there daily. And then uh, attended uh, Loyola University of New Orleans. Uh, um, I was fortunate enough to get a, uh, a scholarship for sports to play D1 college basketball when they let little short people play the game. <laughs> exactly. So someone who was five foot 10 would actually be allowed to play guard. And, uh, uh that's, that is correct. That is correct. <laughs> so, uh, even played, a you know, a little forward every now and then, uh, sort of crazy. The game has changed dramatically if you would. Yeah. But you absolutely loved sports and athletics. I know your family pretty well. They do as well. You uh, had a, a really fun time. Of course, the great thing is it pays for you know, college and helps you get through a really phenomenal education. What did you study there in college? I uh, got a degree in uh, uh, business administration uh, with a degree in accounting. Uh, I had a minor in uh, computer science, which was very interesting because uh, it was all Ball and Fortran then. So uh, uh, really embarked more on the accounting end of the career uh, because uh, the old computer systems were punch cards at the time, if you remember. Well, you would not remember. you significantly younger. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember. So I Fortran was one of my first programming languages. I started writing code in the early 90s, about 91. We learned Fortran 77 and Fortran 90. Did some Unix C, so we did some. We did some of the uh, foundational. I call them foundational languages. You really have to learn to understand where computer science has gone to now. I mean, it's a completely different program uh, now. When you look at computer science grads coming out of school now, uh, than what what you and I went through. Um, I as well got a degree in accounting and got a, a second degree in information systems. So you and I share that we we had a passion for business and accounting, but also a passion for technology. And it's really played a big role. Your love for for business, accounting, technology has really played a steering role in your entire career, hasn't it? It, it has, James. Uh, I, I started with uh, Chevron, Standard All Cal out of college. Uh, was on an executive training program with them. Uh, went out to the home office in San Francisco. 
to help with the uh, annual uh, consolidation of all of the financial statements for, for reporting. Everything was manual on, <laughs> on paper. This is 1976. So we had walls of spreadsheets from 50 different international companies. It was crazy uh, how we used to do things back then. Uh, then, you know, technology, you got into the early IBM systems, uh, system 32 and some of these others. God, um, but again, a lot of that was to do invoicing, billing, not the degree of, of technology that we can do now with in so many different areas. So, yeah, it's really dramatic. It's, it's almost hard to remember a time in business. Um, when we didn't have computers, my father, who you know well, uh, built a, a large Teflon company he started in 1979. He sold it in 2004, and it wasn't until the last two years of a 25-year business that he actually put a computer on his desk. To Believe it or not, for 20, <laughs> for 20 I, I can't even wrap my brain around this, for 22 years, he built one of the largest producers of Teflon in the country without a computer. And uh, <laughs> no email. Right at an 800 number, used a fax machine. I mean, big innovation at the time, fax machine. He said they were able to cut order times down by days by using a fax machine. So they were really early adopters on faxing because of how much, and he he was he loved it, how much time it sped up the sales cycle. And so it's interesting and it's hard to remember a time when it, when we did things in paper. What What attracted you to the insurance business? Because certainly you didn't study that in college. No, actually, um, when uh, I, I left Chevron, um, I went into the uh, oil field service industry. I was had asked me to go abroad, and I decided that wasn't my cup of tea. We had just had our first child. So I went with a oil field service company, uh, originally as a controller, and then eventually became vice president and general manager. And basically, one, one of my jobs was the procurement of insurance. So we had uh, marine exposures, large trucking exposures, property. Cyber wasn't even a consideration back then. But again, I started with the procurement, became good friends with uh, uh, the insurance brokers that I was with. And lo and behold, 15 years later, I wound up uh, joining his firm as the uh, uh, the COO of his insurance broker. And he had a small TPA where I became president of a third-party administrator, which I, at the time, had no understanding of what a TPA was. And that was in the early 90s, if you would. So that that's a big, and if you, you know, those of you out there in listener land who or in the insurance space, no, that's a major transition <laughs> to go from buying insurance to running a TPA. For the uninitiated, uh, what is, what are the major tasks of a third-party administrator? Well, uh, again, in the workers' comp and property and casualty, and uh, basically uh, we are approached by uh, a number of different types of clients large individual self-insureds, Fortune 500 companies, um, insurance companies that we handle claims for, uh, captives. So you, you really deal with a broad uh, spectrum of clients that uh, uh, each has specific needs, specific requirements, and uh, we, we try to make sure that we do a customized approach versus a, a cookie-cutter approach. Uh, uh, a school fund in Michigan is is totally different than a a large waste management company, which has operations in 40 states throughout the country. Which is totally different than an auto dealers group. Right? I mean, <laughs> Correct. Correct. I mean, you, and, and really, you're administering claims. So when people slip, trip, or fall, or there's an accident, or there's a major liability event, you're the first phone call, right? I mean, you're the you're the ones on the front line receiving that report of injury or the report of the incident and grabbing hold of that claim and trying to get people healthy, get them back to work, uh, get everything paid out. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're really the front line of the insurance business and the claim side, right? That, that's, that's correct. Um, and, and we, we are actually a little bit different than a number of our competitors because we actually grew, uh, in the late seventies, um, off of self-insurance and group funds. 
So we, we actually uh, underwrite and do policy issuance on, on over 200 million in, in premium, where we actually take the submissions in from brokers, do underwriting, policy issuance, uh, loss control, and then when there's a claim that happens, we handle the claims. That was where we started. That's where CCMSI uh, basically, uh, the, the little sector that it, it grew out of. But now we're handling large deductible programs for clients with many different coverages, et cetera. So it's very, as I said, knowing it from the policy issuance end all the way through the claims end, it really takes us through the complete cycle. Yeah, and that's that was really unique. Now, now there's more TPAs that do that, but not, not it was definitely not at the time where you're really acting like a carrier without taking the risk on. You're you're Correct. you're you're doing all of the processes, whether it's you know you know binding the policy, underwriting the policy, you know working with the broker. I mean, you're you're doing all of the steps. The the difference is you don't carry the paper, right? That is absolutely correct. And, and, you know, as technologies advance, you can get significant enhancements in all of those uh, areas, you know, be it uh, underwriting and policy issuance all the way through the claims end. How has the TPA business changed? Let's try and set technology aside, maybe from customer expectations, what they expect of a TPA. How has that changed from when you first took over in the early 90s uh, running this TPA to when to, to now, 2019, what, what, what has changed there? Well, I would say in the old days, uh, in the early nineties, we were looked at primarily as, uh, claims handlers. We would be the ones to handle claims for the clients. And their focus was to ensure that we did a great job of, of doing that as times have changed. And now I consider us, uh, a, data-driven uh, company as much as a claims company. Clients are significantly more interested in their data, uh, using their data to help drive better results for their programs. Yeah, you're, you're at some level a data aggregator because of how many different clients you touch and the granularity of the data you have access to. I think that's evidenced by the number of entities like states and carriers who are now placing significantly higher demands on you to produce data to them, right? Well, but the you know, not only the states, you're correct, you know, but we, we're also, all of the various carriers have different data and data requirements. So uh, we have to make sure our applications and, and data can, can really uh, handle the carrier-specific needs as well as the state-specific needs. Yeah. And so you've seen... Uh, what was, I, I've got to ask this question. We're, we're going to jump into predictive analytics in a second. What was the most interesting project or interesting things you were asked to administer in, in just your, your career in, in the, in the claims administration business, which, which now spans what, almost uh, 30 years. That's yeah, um, 30 years. Yeah. Almost 30 years. I mean, you've, you are, you're a pro. I mean, I, I have learned more from you about the insurance business than arguably anybody else I've ever worked with because you, you're such a phenomenal teacher. Um, but you, you've had some weird stuff and some interesting stuff you've had to administrate. What, what's some of the more interesting uh, projects you had to work on? Well, let's see. Uh, going back in time, uh, you, you know, we've, we've had, had some really uh, large governmental programs uh, that were spread out through a complete state. and it was interesting just going a, a, across the state of Louisiana way, way back when, visiting the local parishes and, and seeing the different needs, et cetera. <laughs> and then Louisiana, you have four or five different dialects of, of language within the same state. Yep. Uh, from way down south Louisiana, New Orleans got a, has a different type. So, uh, you know, just trying to go across the state and understand the different components of the program and how people thought about them was very, very unique. Yeah, Louisiana is a fascinating state. I mean, I was I was born and raised there, uh, as were you. You stayed there. I went to I went to Texas, but you know, leaving and going to Texas gave me even more perspective on the unique nature of just dealing with people and in the TPA business. You deal with a lot of people, all the claimants. You have to be able to understand them. You have to be able to communicate with them. It's a it's a big challenge. Did you ever get involved in in, in any hurricane claims? 
Well, actually, we the 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 probably the other unique one was the not not hurricane claims, but the BP all spill. There you go. Um, we we uh, uh, the BP all spill happened, and the state of Louisiana hired us to actually be the data aggregator. Um, there there was uh, uh, different companies uh, that were were handling the claims. The, the state was trying to get their arms around all of the claims and all of the industries. Um, so we actually worked with a, a, a large national firm to help build uh, uh, the, the models for each industry for the loss of, of business use and business income. So uh, that was a really interesting project because we dealt with the shrimping industry. We dealt with the uh, the uh, hotel motel industry, building models to basically go back and help uh, establish their claims for the uh, uh, the loss of, of business use uh, generated from the from the oil spill. And that was a pretty expensive claim, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Let, let's put it like this. I think they're still paying out at this time, uh, almost 10 years later. Oh my goodness. It was, it was somewhere around, uh, uh, 3.19 million barrels of oil that spilled into the Gulf and, uh, ended up being uh, a huge deal. Now, did, did technology play uh, a role in your ability to deal with the Deepwater Horizon oil spill? Well, it, we, we were one of the few people that could actually take data in from multiple sources, uh, aggregate it together, and then uh, provide the state of Louisiana back with the information they needed by industry where they could assess what the losses were for each uh, segment of the industry and each individual insured. Yeah, so, so the answer is yes. Uh, data yes. aggregation, the ability to pull the data together. Now let's let's kind of jump to today because you've you've entered this you've been a you started started out administering claims originally TP has administered claims on paper then uh, we went to managing them digitally then we went to digital workflow software then you took then you went paperless that was a big uh, thing that y'all y'all did really early on just to dump the paper and start routing digital documents and then you digitized the workflow where you're at now though to me seems like completely next level technology because you're not just processing data anymore you're actually using these decades of information you've been storing and capturing to start making much better decisions that are founded in fact data and history rather than gut feel uh, and so talk to me about predictive analytics and what it is to you and the role you think it's going to play uh, going forward well, the insurance industry is sort of late to this game, quite honestly. Lots of other industries, automated cars, and I, we can go into so many different areas. Uh, but the insurance industry has had tons and tons of data that they collect from claims, et cetera. But uh, to a large degree, we were not utilizing that data to the degree it could be used to uh, help in providing uh, better predictions on probability of certain things happening or, or uh, jumping on a claim early because it had the characteristics that, that would uh, indicate it was going to be a high-cost claim. So, so from, from my uh, perspective, uh, back in 2010, we actually did an uh, uh, internal analysis on a, on a large national gaming company that we did that had uh, thousands of, of, of claims a year. And we were just trying to determine the effect uh, that comorbidity might be having on the ultimate cost of, of claims. Well, needless to say, um, uh, the machine learning that we have now, even in 2010, really wasn't existing to the level. So we went through file notes, et cetera, and determined that if a, if a claimant had two or more uh, uh, comorbidities uh, and all of the characteristics of the claim were, were pretty similar, the cost of that claim was about 10 times more. For the, for the uninitiated out there, just what are the common comorbidity factors? 
Well, we were talking about obesity. We talking about diabetes. We're talking about smoking. We're talking about cancer, heart issues, arthritis conditions, et cetera. There's a list of about eight or 10 of the major comorbidity factors that, that go into the analysis. And, and logically speaking, you would think, well, yeah, that makes sense, right? If it, but, but you don't have data and, and, and evidence to prove exactly what type of impact a comorbidity factor can have on a claim. And so that's what's been interesting for me as an outside observer to what you're doing and involved technically in implementation is that this, when you start peeling back the history of the data in these claims, and, and really it helps, and what really helps is that you guys have done such a good job of, of tracking data historically, because you can say, hey, here's all the claims that had good outcomes, here's the claims that had bad outcomes, here's expensive claims, here's inexpensive claims, and here's all the factors that led up to them, right? You have to have that data so you can teach your model. And once your model learns what's good and bad, and what's a good outcome and bad outcome, and expensive and inexpensive, then it can start identifying what I like to say, Skip, and you've heard me say this before, causality versus correlation. Just because yes. just because someone happened to be obese doesn't necessarily mean that caused their claim to be expensive. It might just be, you know, correlation, uh, but it might not be causality. Causa causality is something that really truly caused the outcome. And that to me is what you're really trying to drive towards is what, you know, here's the correlation, but here's the real causality the the end result is what? That you can set reserves better, administer the claim better, get the person back to work faster? Well, yeah, and, and actually be more, right? What you're trying to do is identify problematic claims or potential problematic claims, high-risk claims, high-cost claims. Uh, you're trying to identify them early on so our adjusters, supervisors, and clients can jointly be more proactive in, in, in that claim to hopefully drive a better outcome for the injured claimant, which in turn should drive a better uh, financial outcome from a claim cost perspective. I mean, I, I'll give you a perfect example. I, you know, and this goes way back when we were doing the analysis, uh, there was a restaurant worker that uh, was uh, obese, so about five foot eight, 350 pounds. It was just a little slip and fall with a sprained ankle. Well, uh, that, that person, 32 years old, um, wound up having uh, diabetes, uh, having other comorbidity factors, um, and ultimately a, a, a minor slip and fall that uh, resulted in a sprained ankle wound up being an amputation because of, of complications from the, the diabetes, which was not work-related. But uh, ultimately, that, that claim came in over $500,000. So, you, you know, you can easily, in a situation like that, understand how factors not necessarily related uh, to the, the causation, but actually uh, are impacted by the medical condition of the claimant has a dramatic impact on a claim. Yeah, and medicals. You know, it's it's a big big can be a big bugaboo, right? Because <laughs> you, you, because the human body is so complicated, you're not sure when when a, when an incident occurs exactly what outside factors that were pre existing conditions will impact the outcome of that claim. No no two claims are alike, and, and no two claimants are alike. So you have to constantly look at what all the criteria has. All this resulted in you guys collecting a lot more information. Well, we, we, we did. Uh, so from that comorbidity uh, study back in 2010 and 2013, we actually created a, a tool called a claim risk assessment. And again, remember, <laughs> originally this information was going in paper. Then, you, you, you know, um, you, you started having file notes, but you did not have data fields where you could easily data mine. And you really weren't in an area at that time to really mine the data notes eff effectively. So, uh, so basically, we developed a, a, a tool called Claim Risk Assessment where we added um, about 70 d new data fields, distance to work, pain threshold. I'm just giving you a couple here. Probability that you think you will return to work 
and we developed a an internal algorithm that would score claims. And primarily, we were doing this with just indemnity claims and rating those claims as high, moderate, or low-risk claims so our adjusters could, uh, again, this would normally be done during the recorded statement, which would happen in the first 10 to 15 days of a claim, which, uh, which basically would give us an early indication of some of the drivers of the claim that we thought would help our adjusters do a better job in proactive claims management. But that was all human assumptions. You, know, you, did a, you did a study that was powered by humans, that was run by humans, and then at the end of the day, you produced uh, a formula that was baked into your software that was based off the results of this comorbidity study. The game kind of changes when you move to predictive analytics because now you're feeding this engine uh, the data, and then it's now saying, hey, there's some stuff you never thought about that's driving your claim cost. Absolutely. So again, I think we all in the technology space have been trying to keep up with the the rapid uh, increase in the use of machine learning, right? A lot of people call it artificial intelligence, uh, but it's machine learning where, uh, you, you know, our, the, the systems we utilize uh, can learn so much from the data and be proactive in providing you um, analysis of that data. We will started looking at some other alternatives in 2016, 17. Well, in 2000, early 2018, we, we signed an agreement with a, a company called Gradient AI. Uh, at the time, they were owned by Milliman. Uh, they had a 26 million claim uh, work comp data set uh, that we could tap into, uh, provide our data, build models off of it, and really uh, provide just some uh, outstanding uh, uh, analysis, uh, both from the probability of future treatment uh, that will be needed on the claim, uh, the comorbidities that are impacting that claim, um, and the probability of this claim having a a high dollar threshold. Uh, so uh, we, uh, we, we started live with them actually in early 2019, where we, uh, all of our work is now coming into a product that we're extremely excited about. Has, has it resulted in any surprises? Were, were there some claims that it identified as really risky claims that in, under your traditional human analysis just would have been missed? Well, one of the things that I think it, it surprises us is is basically how quickly at, at, they start putting or are assigning a a mean uh, incurred value uh, thirty days into a claim. Now they do this both for medical only and indemnity claims because they feel like before assigning a value, um, it it will basically it needs thirty days of information to set that value. Uh, but what surprised us and, and we've looked at the analytics is that as good as our adjusters are, it, it really appears that the, the, the artificial intelligence generates during that, at least from day 30 through, uh, maybe day 150 with the adjuster catching up normally at about one, 180 days into a claim. The adjusters and the and the artificial intelligence are are more in sync with with the, their their expectations on the ultimate cost of of the claim. But um, again, as we talked about earlier, getting on problematic claims very early normally drives better outcomes. So if the machine uh, of the software it can uh, assist our adjusters in identifying these problematic claims earlier. We feel we'll definitely get better outcomes and better financial results. Yeah, it's a, it's really amazing to me when you look at claim volumes and how, how hard it is to just stay on top of all the data in insurance, right? Just the number of data fields, number of claims you have to manage. And you guys really do a great job of keeping claim counts per adjuster in line. Even with that, all the work you do to, to keep an appropriate claim count and give your adjusters time to manage a claim, it is so difficult to catch everything. 
And that's to me one of the biggest things here is that you have you finally have some some robotic assistance, not just processing the data and presenting a screen you can click on, but saying, hey, you might want to check this out because I think that it's going to have some problems. And, and that that's really where this this uh, comes into play for me is that you've you've got yeah uh, this this area of machine learning, which is a, a subset of AI. It's a specific form of AI that that is really going to deliver, uh, I think, leaps and bounds of volume. The other area that really fascinated me, Skip, is all the plain text images and videos. So we call that, you know, unstructured data, data that wasn't in fields that you can now tap into using a predictive analytics engine. You can tap into years of these diary entries and start to peel useful information out of them. James, I, look, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you, you know, we push every data field in our, in our system, every file note, because now the technology can read the file notes, pick out keywords, phrases, everything, because the adjusters put a ton of information in there. We push every medical bill, every PBM bill, uh, you, you know, but where the future is going, quite honestly, we're already, you, you know, uh, discussing the, the possibility uh, using voice, uh, uh, you know, in the analysis as well, where when you do the recorded statement or even even at the uh, uh, initial call in of a 1-800 uh, report of injury, um, it, it's amazing the technology can now pick out key factors of, of, from a, a person's voice that might be providing false statements that that we all know has an impact in in the cost of a claim. Sure, yeah. If they're lying to you, you might have a problem. Uh, and and it's uh, it is interesting. So truth analysis, also another uh, subset of, of of machine learning and and AI, where you're actually trying to, to detect intent, tone. Um, if you ever watched the TV series Lie to Me, it was all about using uh, machines to identify facial features and voice features when someone's lying to you. So certainly you, you are trying to detect that, but also just read using a machine to read through two decades of diary entries and two decades of notes that really were impossible for a human to sit and read through and say, Hey, we've got some commonality here. We've got, we've got a real issue. Whenever, whenever an adjuster starts talking about this on a claim, we got a problem. That to me is probably one of the most powerful areas I've seen uh, you utilize here. Have you seen a lot of people in the insurance space doing this? Because, or, or do you do you consider this a pretty early adoption? I can tell you in our discussions with Gradient, um, we are the first TPA that I'm aware that is doing this. Uh, I think a lot of our our competitors and the industry in general is trying to get their arms um, around this. I think they are all in agreement that machine learning and AI uh, can assist, but we have not seen much from our competition that's actually delivering the kind of information that we're going to be delivering here. Do you think all of this is going to lead to the ability to start taking simpler claims and auto adjudicating them where you're able to just say, hey, look, we've got a whole bunch of claims that are pretty simple that we can just automatically pay out? Well, I, I, let, let's put it like this. Right now, we are looking at this to be a, a, an additional tool for our adjusters and our supervisors to basically utilize to see if there's a major variance between the estimate that the, the, uh, the AI is predicting versus what our adjusters have. But let's be real about this. As the machine gets more information, uh, and, and basically, the analytics and the AI will continue getting better. Uh, in the future, I do see that there could be the potential for, especially in the medical-only space, doing a medical-only claim almost on an auto-adjudication basis. We're not there yet, but it could ha it, it will happen. Yeah, it will, it will happen. We, we're, we're already seeing it in the, the residential property business. We're seeing it in uh, personal lines auto, where there's a certain class, class and category of claims that just get automatically paid out now. 
they, they don't even go through. Again, we and I'm very careful on all of my talks and all of my podcasts that I do. We're not talking about human replacement. We're talking about human augmentation here. We, we're talking about giving people the ability to do higher thinking tasks. So we're not talking about replacing a sea of adjusters. We're talking about taking those same adjusters and making them way more effective. And we're talking about taking those same adjusters and allowing them to potentially manage, uh, uh, you know, the the really high volume nasty claims and spend a lot of time on those to manage them, those things that need human interaction and offloading the menial work on the machines that can handle that for them so they can really focus their time and efforts on getting people back to work faster and taking care of the customer. And so I just want to make it really clear for all of our listeners, we're not talking about human replacement. We're talking about human augmentation. Giving, giving a, give, I, I give, would, I would, I would agree, and and I would, I would state, you, you know, in the old days, James, the carriers did so much training of adjusters, etc. The carriers are not handling as many claims as they did. A lot of them are starting to outsource claims, um, and and the adjuster pool is is it's very difficult to to find quality experienced adjusters out there. So I don't see this as a replacement. Uh, as you said, but it will definitely uh, assist uh, organizations uh, to maintain quality adjusters. You know, from a staffing perspective. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's it's gonna be awesome. I, I think it's gonna be awesome for the quality of life uh, of some of these workers. That you you just have a, you have millions of workers in the insurance business that are kind of bogged down with with tasks that can be automated, so they can really free their day up to think. You know, and to really use their God-given talents to uh, to really reduce the cost of risk and add value to the client. And so it's a it's an exciting future uh, for me. Now, this can't be the only tech you're excited about. I know that y- you have a lot of different technology that really gets you geeked out. So what else out there that that you've been seeing over the last few years uh, do, do you think is a, is a game changer? Well, I'm going to wrap up the artificial intelligence for the adjusters with the next phase which is actually recommending interventions back to the adjuster. Like, is this an appropriate time to, to do a IME? Is this the appropriate time to get a field case manager or TCM? And what is the financial benefit of doing that? that? That is coming as well. So not just doing predictions, but just recommending uh, treatment interventions or, or claim handling interventions back to the adjuster that's that's coming shortly after uh, probably within the next six months or so. A couple of the other areas uh, that so many clients now uh, are capturing extremely large video surveillance, it's the storage of information that you know we're, we're talking about utilizing data. Well, we've got to store the data and ha- having the ability to store, you know, all of these large video files and, and, and so the cloud has been a phenomenal new source for basically housing a lot of this data at a much less expensive cost that will allow both the, the, the client and uh, the, the TPA to retrieve that information extremely quickly uh, at, a, at a low cost. Awesome stuff. Let, let's talk about the, uh, the future of insurance because we're starting to see technology companies that are starting to carry risk. <laughs> Instead of just the technology company being a vendor to the insurance business, you're starting to see the technology company take over risk operations and actually carry risk. And um, do you think that this is a harbinger of some significant change in the fundamental makeup of the insurance business? Well, I see new companies, new carriers entering the space. A lot, a lot of them uh, seem to be very, very data driven. They're they're using the data uh, not only for claims, but actually to really do a large portion of the underwriting uh, to basically identify the what they feel is the best and most profitable risk. So yes, I see the industry changing a good bit. And, and that's why we are, are now, as I started out early saying, we're data-driven companies as much as anything else. For me, it's it's feasible to see a world in which 
you have uh, a series of companies who are simply incapable of making the leap to being data-driven organizations that carry or manage risk. And you have a, a series of companies that are started as fundamentally started as data and technology organizations that happen to carry or manage risk as one of their functions. And I, I think you're going to see, I, I'm going to say that you're, I, I think we're going to see some pretty significant um, change in the makeup of the market. I think that's why you see a lot of the really big insurance carriers have started technology venture funds and they're starting to invest in the very companies that are going to disrupt their own business models because they're they're almost acknowledging it'll be challenging for them to change it from within. And so they're investing in the very companies that are doing it so they can at least have an equity ownership and, of course, one day merge those companies into their operations. You're seeing really, really big players in the insurance space become insure tech venture players. And I, I've seen venture funds from some of the largest guys that we see at RIMS every year are putting together insure tech venture funds and they're saying, hey, if we can't drive the innovation internally fast enough, maybe we can invest in the next people that will so we can still play a relevant role going forward in this really data-driven process. The other area I'm seeing, like I'm a drone pilot. You know, I love flying. I love flying planes. I love flying drones. And uh, Verifly is uh, one of those really interesting providers that just sells you insurance by the minute. So you're starting to see this really interesting fractionalized market where I can log in on my drone app and buy 60 minutes of coverage in a specific geography to a specific altitude for a specific purpose. And it, and you think I I would I would not and you know when I got involved in insurance uh, almost 20 years ago I would not have imagined a world in which I could buy 60 minutes of insurance. But you can now. You can, you, know, you can buy it yourself. It binds immediately. It issues the policy. It uses your GPS on your phone to know where you are. Uh, it knows what kind of drone you have because it's connected to your drone. I mean, it, it's, it's incredible how intelligent this is. And if you go through some of the modern underwriting processes for residential and renter's insurance, they're pulling on 20 different public data sources. You're not answering any questions hardly on underwriting because they're answering all of the questions on your house for you. And so it, to me, Skip, it, it, it seems like a world in which guys like you are going to operate really well because you're used to running a data-driven organization, but some just won't be able to make the leap. Well, you know, um, again, um, we, we, we have always embraced technology to help us be better as a company and as an organization. Um, we're, we're all about our people, but if we can make our people uh, better and perform better by giving them the tools to, to do their job um, um, and technology is, is, is definitely extremely important in our space to do that, then we need to do it. I, I mean, um, telehealth is, is coming to the comp space, right? Uh, so, so just think about this. We were talking about, you know, Again, you've got video or you can have video coming back and, and communication coming back from from uh, the uh, the claimant and the uh, telehealth provider. Um, again, just think about the ability to drop that into a, a artificial intelligence tool to assist in, in analyzing that claimant's attitude, that claimant's uh, desire to return to work, et cetera. Uh, uh, again, it's just going to continue. Uh, by leaps and bounds because of the enhanced capabilities of technology. Yeah, there was a, a interesting article today, Skip, about uh, Google Duplex. Google Duplex is Google's um, voice tool that uh, allows their machine to, to call uh, restaurants and salons and set appointments for people. And I, I'm a big believer in the consumerization of, of uh, IT uh, where that consumer tech creeps into the into business tech and really it starts in consumer land and then it moves into businesses. And so this particular uh, chatbot is a voice chatbot that can call people and talk to them, even has little nuances of human speech like uh, uh-huh and hmm. And uh, they've, they've, they've made it so realistic that there's many people that say on the receiving end they can't tell if it's a person or a machine. And um, there, there's an article that recently came out that Google was using about uh, – using humans for about 25% of those calls. So if, if a call kind of went sideways and the machine couldn't deal with it, 
they would bring humans in and uh, to, to finish the call out. But about 75% of these calls are able to be handled entirely by the machine. And, and so a lot of those same type of technologies will be used exactly uh, like what you just mentioned. That is uh, giving you the ability to analyze what they're saying and how they're saying it and provide recommendations and, and, and trigger key phrases. I mean, it's, it's, this is, it's, it's going to be an interesting uh, next 10 years in the insurance space. And I think you'd agree the pace of change is certainly accelerating over what we saw from 1990 to 2000. Well, I, it, it, it is... It is rapidly changing. Uh, I, I think almost all organizations are, are, are trying to figure out how they can use the technology to get better. Some are doing it better than others. And, and those would be the companies that take the lead in the industry. And uh, let's, let's, let's wrap up our final, final comments on benchmarking because it, it was in the past, you really didn't have a great way of benchmarking how you're doing in the insurance business. You have a you have the the uh, NEIC that has uh, the the $0 first dollar data uh, but not not a really great data set on large deductible self-insured retention, right? And so um, benchmarking has really become a hot topic for you so you can identify how your customers are doing versus the data universe, not just how they did because what you see a lot of times skip is customers and, and you looking at how you did compared to yourself the previous year, because that's the easiest comparison to make, right? You already have all the data uh, in. Ben, 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 benchmarking internally tends is, is, is easy, right? I mean, yeah. you can see what my results were this year versus last year. What was my cost per claim, yeah. uh, you know, et cetera. But, you know, that's great benchmarking yourself, but how are you benchmarking against your, your, your peers, or you're performing as well as or better than your peers. It's critical to try and get that data, right? And get data, you were talking about self-insured. You, you know, uh, NCCI is, is what I call more of a guaranteed cost, smaller uh, client. But, but large deductible clients and large self-insured retentions those clients tend to be much more sophisticated. They're taking a large portion of their risk themselves. So uh, ensuring that their programs are driving the results and keeping them as competitive or even more competitive than, their, than, than the people they compete with uh, is, is critical. So I think benchmarking, it's great to have the AI to help you drive results and, and you know you're getting better results internally. But again, other people are, are pushing to get better as well. So how are, are you staying as competitive or are you beating your peers? Yeah, and again, when you benchmark against yourself, like sometimes you can give yourself, remember the, the, the most improved awards, right? right. It, it, we we had that in the, uh, I was in the core cadets at A&M and we, we had the, we had an award for the outfit that was the most improved outfit, and uh, no one called it that award. Uh, everyone in the core called it the "You Sucked Last Year" award, and um, <laughs> and to me, that's what benchmarking against yourself is like. What if you just sucked last year? <laughs> like, like what if you were just really, really bad, and now you're just mostly bad, and and that's concerning. And that's what self benchmarking can drive is this irrational belief, not rooted in reality, that you're doing well compared to everyone, not just compared to yourself. And, and so, you know, we worked on a pretty, pretty awesome project called uh, CompMark that uh, allowed for TPAs to benchmark themselves against the data universe. And uh, now that project, and, and there's, you know, a little too early to announce what that project's becoming, but that project's going to become something else, something independent for people to be able to benchmark claim performance against a data universe without worrying about uh their information going public. It's a it's a confidential, secure system, and so what that's what's exciting to me. And and this was you were one of the brain children behind this, um, where it actually gave you the ability to say, hey, among hospitals in Illinois, how are we doing? Are we doing well or not? And it gives you a a truly objective scorecard. Well, and if you're a hospital in the Chicago land area versus a hospital in in uh, the, the Southern part of the state, you're, you, that, that's two different universe. <laughs> that's two different universes. That's just like 
claims in, in California are significantly more expensive than claims in Indiana. Different laws, different statutes, different regulations. So when you're benchmarking, just to say, well, how did I compare across the country? You really needed to look at it on a state-by-state basis because each jurisdiction is, is so different, right? For someone that might have operations in you know certain areas of the Midwest, uh, their, their claim results um, just because of the, of, of the area they're operating in is going to be less than California or less than New York, et cetera. So you've, you've got to benchmark back to your jurisdiction as well. Very, very critical. Yeah. And what's really interesting, Skip, is that the process of benchmarking actually teaches you about local and data nuances that impact the cost of claims and the cost of risk. Just just being able to see, hey, show me, you know, average cost per claim by state, by this, you know, industry code, it actually allows you to become a much better uh, adjuster, much better risk professional, because you start to understand not just a gut feel that things are more expensive in California, because let's be honest, everything's more expensive in California. The true data backing to prove that, yeah, claims actually cost more there. It really, once I started to be able to peel through these years of benchmarking data, it taught me a lot about what really drives the cost of risk and how important data and benchmarking are. I, I couldn't concur more. Well, Skip, you're, a, you're a, uh, in my opinion, a true visionary in the insurance uh, and technology space. I appreciate uh, the time you took to talk with us today. Any, any closing comments or remarks? No, man, just, uh, you know, uh, we just need to keep uh, jointly geeking out and and trying to figure out better ways to drive better results. And I'm one of the old guys in the industry that still is having a great time trying to come up with new ideas and thoughts to uh, help our, our company and our clients get better results. It's always challenging, but but very, very uh, fun. Yeah. And if you don't know, Skip, uh that that little number uh, called his age is maybe going up a little bit, but he's still uh, he's still a, a healthy twenty one on the inside. And uh, don't don't ever forget it. He has more energy than almost anybody I know, <laughs> and uh, and uh, absolutely has a passion for innovation technology. But you know the the biggest thing that you have a passion for that is worth noting, Skip, is your passion for people and investing in people. You've invested in me heavily and I appreciate it. You've invested in a lot of other people who uh, who owe a lot to you. So we uh, we all appreciate it. And thanks for your time today on the podcast. What a great time it was. And uh, everyone have a great day. Take care, everyone. That was our interview with Skip Brechtel, the CIO and EVP at CCMSI, talking about predictive analytics, data and risk. This has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast powered by JB Knowledge. It's all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. Thank you for joining us this week. Look forward to talking with you soon. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.